welcome back to the American History Podcast. So today is going to be another segment, an episode on Texas, and we're going to be looking at the constitutions today. So looking at the role and like purpose of a state constitution. So state constitutions, they have a number of very important functions. So they justify and they legitimize the state political institutions by explaining what the source of their power is and what their authority is, right? State constitutions, they also assign or delegate power, you know, it helps explain which powers are granted to which institutions and individuals or people and how those powers are to be used. So they, uh, are responsible also for establishing local governments, counties, municipalities, special purpose districts. They prevent concentrating political power, you know, in the hands of few. They try to prevent that by providing mechanisms that help check and balance the powers of one institution or individual office holder against others. And finally, they define what the limits of political power are. So through various declarations of rights, states, constitutions, they explicitly forbid the intrusion of certain kinds of governmental activities into the lives of individuals. And the idea of constitutional government in Texas since the first constitution has been very heavily indebted to the larger American experience. Five ideas help unite the U.S. and Texas constitutional experiences. So first is that the political power and both the U.S. and Texas uh, constitutions is that political power is ultimately derived from the people. You know, even the preamble to the U.S. Constitution begins with the very clear assertion that it is we, the people of the United States, that ordain and establish the Constitution. And echoing that sentiment, the preamble to the Texas Constitution says, you know, the people of the state of Texas do ordain and establish this Constitution. And so in both documents, the political power is something that is artificially created through the Constitution by a conscious act of the people. So second, the U.S. and Texas Constitutions, they feature separation of powers. The legislative, executive, and judicial branches, the government, they all have their own unique powers that are derived from the people. Each branch has its own corresponding duties and obligations. Third, the U.S. and Texas constitutions, they structure the political power in a way that the power of one branch is checked and balanced by the powers of the other two branches. So the idea of checks and balances reflects a common concern among the framers of the U.S. constitution and the authors of the various Texas constitutions that the intent of writing a constitution is not just to establish an effective governing institutions but to also ensure that the institutions are not going to tyrannize the very people that establish them. So in the theory of checks and balances, both the U.S. and Texas constitutions embody the ideas that were articulated by James Madison in the Federalist Papers, numbers 10, 47, and 51. And in these, Madison argued that one of the most effective ways of preventing tyranny or concentrating power in one branch of government is to pit the self-interest of office holders in one branch against that of the office holders in other branches. So good intentions alone are not going to guarantee liberty in either the United States or Texas. You know, it's rather constitutional means combined with self-interest that ensure that office holders have an interest in preserving a balance among the different branches of government. 
And the concern for preventing the emergence of tyranny is also found in a fourth idea that underlies the U.S. and Texas constitutions, the idea of individual rights. So government is very explicitly forbidden from violating a number of particular rights that the people possess. Some rights like freedom of speech, assembly, religion, they're all guaranteed by both the U.S. and Texas constitutions. And interestingly, the Texas constitution also guarantees other rights that are not found in the U.S. constitution such as uh, certain victims' rights and the right to have an efficient system of public free schools. And the final idea that's embodied in both U.S. and Texas constitutions is that of federalism, so the division of government into a central government and then a group of regional governments. So both kinds of government, they exercise direct authority over individual citizens of both the nation or state and a particular region within it. The Tenth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution also recognizes the importance of the idea of federalism to the American political system. It reads, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. So according to the U.S. Constitution, enormous reservoirs of political power are thus derived from the people who reside in the states themselves. However, some important differences distinguish the constitutional experience of Texas from that of the United States most important is the subordinate role that Texas has in the federal system. Now, Article 6 of the U.S. Constitution contains the Supremacy Clause, declaring the Constitution and the laws of the United States to be the supreme law of the land. The Supremacy Clause requires all judges in every state to be bound by the U.S. Constitution, notwithstanding the laws or constitution of their particular state. In matters of disagreement, the U.S. Constitution thus takes precedence over the Texas Constitution. One of the major issues of the Civil War was how the federal system was to be understood. Was the United States a confederation of autonomous sovereign states that were ultimately independent political entities capable of secession, much like the current European Union? Or was it a perpetual union of states that were ultimately in a subordinate relationship to the central government? The results of the war and the ratification of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution in 1868 ultimately resolve this debate in terms of the latter idea, an outcome that would have profound implications for constitutional government in Texas. A series of court cases determined that because of the language of the 14th Amendment, much of the Bill of Rights to the U.S. Constitution applies to the states, a finding that became a dominant theme of constitutional law in the 20th and 21st centuries. The 14th Amendment thus effectively placed restrictions on Texas government and public policy that went far beyond those laid out in Texas' own constitution. Another major difference between the U.S. and Texas Constitutions lies in the Necessary and Proper Clause of Article 1, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution. Section 8 begins by listing in detail the specific powers granted to Congress by the Constitution. The Founders apparently wanted to limit the scope of the national government activities, but Section 8 concludes by granting Congress the power necessary and proper to accomplish its constitutional tasks. The net effect of this clause was to provide a constitutional basis for an enormous expansion of central government activities over the next 200 plus years. Drafters of Texas' various constitution generally have been unwilling to grant such an enormous loophole in the exercise of governmental power. Although granting state government the power to accomplish certain tasks, Texas constitutions have generally denied office holders broad grants of discretionary power to accomplish their goals. Finally, Texas' power to establish local governments has no analogous feature in the U.S. Constitution. States such as Texas are sovereign entities unto themselves, deriving power directly from the people in the state through the state constitution. Texas is not created by the U.S. Constitution, although it is subject to it, like we're going to talk about 
in another podcast. So local governments within Texas, on the other hand, they derive their authority directly from the state constitution and the people of Texas as a whole, not from the people in the locality. Self-government for local governing bodies in Texas ultimately means self-government to the extent allowed by the Texas legislature under the tex- under the state constitution. Now, we're going to talk about like specific constitutions that Texas has had over its history. And there's a lot of myths that surround the origins of Texas as a state, you know. Some trumpet its unique origins as an independent republic that fought to attain its own independence from an oppressive regime, much like the United States did. Others suggest that Texas has a certain privileged position as a state given the way that it entered the Union, or that it reserved for itself a right to break up into separate states or even to leave the Union. To separate the myth from reality, it's necessary to understand how the constitutional regime operating in Texas today is the product of a long course of political and legal development in the state. Texas has operated under seven constitutions, one when it was part of a state under the Mexican political regime prior to independence, one as an independent republic, one as a member of the Confederacy, and four as a state within the United States. Each was shaped by historical developments of its time and, following the first constitution, attempted to address the shortcomings of each previous constitution. To understand constitutional government in Texas today demands a clear understanding of the founding of Texas out of its war of independence with Mexico and the specific historical circumstances that gave rise to each constitution. So now we're going to talk about the Texas founding. So political scientists, they refer to the founding as that period in American history when the foundational principles of American life were, political life were established. You know, roughly the period of time from the Declaration of Independence in 1776 through the ratification of the Constitution in 1790 and the Bill of Rights in 1791. And Texas has a founding period, but one that's much longer and more convoluted. So on the face, Texas' right to independence appears to kind of mirror that of the United States. And like the United States, Texas had a period of discontent with the governing regime that culminated in a Declaration of Independence. The document cataloged grievances against Mexico and announced the establishment of a new Republic of Texas. But whereas Britain in the mid-18th century was a stable and powerful empire, Mexico in the early 19th century was not. Mexico had only recently freed itself from Spain and was experiencing a lengthy period of domestic turmoil. In addition, while the American colonies had effectively been self-governing entities before their Declaration of Independence, Texas had never really achieved such a status. So the Texas founding encompassed a number of phases of constitutional government, stretching from 1836, when Texas declared itself an independent republic, to 1876, when Reconstruction after the Civil War came to an end and a new state constitution was put into place, which is Texas' current constitution. So, uh, Texas was part of New Spain until the Mexican War of Independence, which grew out of a series of revolts against Spanish rule during the Napoleonic Wars. Burdened by debts brought on by a crippling war with France, Spain sought to extract more wealth from its colonies. The forced abdication of King Ferdinand VIII in favor of Napoleon's brother Joseph in 1808 and an intensifying economic crisis in New Spain in 1809 and 1810 undermined the legitimacy of Spanish rule. Revolts broke out in Guanajuato, and spread throughout Mexico, including its Texas province. Although these rebellions were initially put down by royalist forces loyal to Spain, by 1820, additional local revolts and guerrilla actions had helped to further weaken Spanish rule. And so on August 24, 1821, Mexico was formally granted independence by Spain. 
The first federal constitution that Texas operated under was thus the Mexican Constitution of 1824. At the national level, it provided for two houses of Congress, a president and vice president, elected for four-year terms by the legislative bodies of the states, and a Supreme Court. Although the Mexican Constitution mandated separate legislative, executive, and judicial branches, no attempt was made to define the scope of states' rights within the Mexican Confederation, and local affairs remained independent of the central government. This constitution embodied many of the ideas found in the U.S. Constitution, but there was one important difference. Catholicism was established as the state religion and was supported financially by the state. Under the Mexican Constitution, the state of Coahuila and the sparsely populated province of Texas were combined into the state of Coahuila y Tejas, with Saltillo and Coahuila as the capital. More than two years were spent drafting a constitution for the new state, and it was finally published on March 11, 1827. The state of Coahuila y Tejas was formally divided into three districts, with Texas composing the District of Bejar. Legislative power for the state was placed in a unicameral legislature composed of 12 deputies elected by the people, including two representing Bejar. Now, unicameral means like one body or house, or like a one-house legislature. Now, along with wide-ranging legislative powers, the legislature was also empowered to elect state officials when no majority emerged from the popular vote, to serve as a grand jury in political and military matters, and to regulate the state's army and militia. Executive power was vested in a governor and a vice governor, each elected by the people for a four-year term. Judicial power was placed in state courts. The Constitution of 1827 formally granted, guaranteed citizens the right to liberty, security, property, and equality. Its language also supported efforts to curtail the spread of slavery, an institution of vital importance to planters who were immigrating from the American South. The legislature was ordered to promote education and freedom of the press. As in the federal Mexican federal constitution, Catholicism was the established state religion. Political instability in Mexico in the late 1820s and early 1830s largely undercut the provisions and protections of both the federal and the state constitutions under which Texans lived. But these constitutions were important to political debate at the time as discontent against the central government built up. At least in the early stages of the Texas Rebellion against Mexico, many Texans could and did see themselves as defending these constitutions and most of the political principles that they represented. The turn away from defending the Mexican Constitution of 1824 and the state constitution of 1827 to articulating a new constitutional regime relying more on American political and cultural values was a fundamental step on the road to independence for Texas. Now, Texas' break with Mexico was in large part a constitutional crisis that culminated in separation. Americans had come to Texas for a variety of reasons. Some, like Stephen F. Austin, had come in the service of the Mexican state as empresarios, whose goal was to encourage Mex American immigration into Texas by distributing land made available by the Mexican government. They saw themselves as Mexican citizens working with the constitutional regime of 1827. Americans who had come to Texas in the early 1830s still wanted the land and economic opportunities offered by Texas, but they, as part of America's move westward, were far less committed to integrating themselves into the Mexican political community. For these people, separation from Mexico, either as an independent republic or as part of the United States, was the ultimate political objective. Recognizing the dangers to Mexican authority from Americans coming into Texas, Mexican officials made various attempts to limit the influx. These restrictions, along with other grievances, led to growing discontent among Texans over their place in the Mexican federal system. Ultimately, 
Texans call for political conventions in 1832 and 1833 to discuss new constitutional forms of government. Along with demands for a more liberal immigration policy for people from the United States and for the establishment of English and Spanish-speaking primary schools, calls for separate statehood for Texas emerged from the conventions. The 1833 convention actually drafted a constitution and sent Stephen F. Austin to Mexico City to petition the central government for reform. Austin's mission failed and led to his imprisonment, which in turn pushed Texas closer to open rebellion. On November 7, 1835, a meeting of Texas political leaders at San Felipe adopted a declaration stating the reasons Texans were beginning to take up arms against the Mexican government. The declaration proclaimed that Texas was rising up in defense of its rights and liberties as well as the Republican principles articulated in the Mexican Constitution of 1824. But though it was one thing to call for a defense of Republican principles under the Mexican Constitution of 1824, it was something else to call for separation from Mexico. In the end, the declaration was but a prelude to the formal Texas Declaration of Independence that emerged out of the Convention of 1836 held at Washington on the Brazos. Of the 59 delegates attending the Convention of 1836, only 10 had lived in Texas prior to 1830, and two had arrived as late as 1836. Two-thirds of the delegates, 39 actually, were from southern slave states. Six were from the border state of Kentucky, seven were from northern states, three were from Mexico, including two born in Texas, and four were from other English-speaking lands. The final products of the convention, the Texas Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of 1836, reflected the interests and values of these participants. In their own Declaration of Independence, delegates to the convention proclaimed that the federal constitutional regime they had been invited to live under by the rulers of Mexico had been replaced by a military tyranny that combined a despotism of the sword and the priesthood. Echoing the American Declaration of Independence, they presented a long list of grievances against the central government, including the failure to provide freedom of religion, a system of public education, and trial by jury. Like the founders during the American Revolution, leaders of the Texas Revolution felt they needed to justify their actions in print. Written by George C. Childress and adopted by the General Convention at Washington on the Brazos on March 2, 1836, the Texas Declaration of Independence stated why the signers believed it was necessary to separate from Mexico and create an independent republic. Not surprisingly, the document draws heavily on the ideas of John Locke and Thomas Jefferson for inspiration. The description of the role of the government to protect the lives, liberty, and property of the people repeated verbatim Locke's litany of the primary reasons for establishing government. And like Jefferson's declaration, Texas Declaration catalogs a list of grievances against the Mexican regime. According to Texas Declaration, the existing government had abdicated its duties to protect the governed and had broken the trustee relationship that binds a people to those in authority. By dissolving civil society, or civil society into its original elements, the government had forced the people to assert their inalienable right of self-preservation and to take political affairs into their own hands again. The melancholy conclusion of Texas Declaration echoed ideas that Locke and Jefferson would have understood well. Any government that stripped a people of their liberty was unacceptable to those raised on principles of self-government. Self-preservation demanded eternal political separation from the very state, Mexico, that invited them to settle in Texas. After declaring Texas a separate republic independent 
separate republic independent from Mexico, the convention proceeded to draft and pass a new constitution reflecting these republican sentiments. Resembling the U.S. Constitution in being brief, fewer than 6,500 words and flexible, the 1836 Constitution established an elected chief executive with considerable powers, a bicameral legislature, and a four-tiered judicial system composed of justice, county, district, and supreme courts. Power was divided among these three branches with a system of checks and balances between them. The Constitution also included complicated procedures for amendments, along with the Bill of Rights. The values of American democracy percolated through the document in other ways as well, such as a guarantee that all white males could vote. Checks and balances were established between the three branches of government. On the other hand, a number of important provisions from Spanish-Mexican law were adapted for the Texas Republic in the Constitution, including the idea of community property in which property acquired by either spouse during a marriage would be jointly owned, homestead protections in which one's home would be protected during bankruptcy proceedings, and debtor relief. While giving these Spanish-American legal provisions constitutional status, Texas moved closer to the Anglo-American model of jurisprudence in other ways. By 1840, the Republic of Texas formally adopted the rules of English common law to replace Spanish law in most civil and criminal matters, but there was one notable exception. Following Spanish and Mexican law, Texas initially retained ownership of all minerals under the ground even as land grants provided for individual ownership of the land itself. Until the Constitution of 1866, a consensus existed that the best model for developing Texas and its mineral resources was through direct government ownership of all mineral rights. Under the constitutions of 1866, 69, and 76, a new model was adopted granting ownership of mineral rights to the individuals who owned the land under which minerals were found. The state retained some claims to mineral rights, largely in western parts of the state, to fund public schools and higher education. But the new idea was that private entrepreneurs would do a better job developing the state's natural resources than would state officials. The complicated history of mineral rights in oil and gas law, as well as the entire oil and natural gas industry in the 19th and 20th centuries, follows directly from the decisions made in later constitutions to replace the original mineral rights provisions of the constitutions of 1836, 45, and 61. What are the most important aspects of the Constitution of 1836, at least from the perspective of the newly immigrated Americans from the South? What's its defense of slavery as an economic and political institution with constitutional protections? The Constitution of Coahuila y Tejas of 1827 had challenged, albeit unsuccessfully, the existence of slavery. Although the 1836 Constitution outlawed the importation of slaves from Africa, it guaranteed that slaveholders could keep their slaves as property and that new slaveholding immigrants could bring their slaves into Texas with them. The results of this constitutional protection were monumental. In 1836, Texas had a population of 38,470, including 5,000 slaves. By 1850, the slave population had grown to over 58,000, over one quarter of the state's population. By 1860, there were more than 182,000 slaves, accounting for more than 30% of the population. The Constitution of 1836 not only saved slavery as an institution in Texas, but also provided the protections needed for slavery to flourish. 
Writing a constitution is one thing, putting it into effect is another. Only after the Battle of San Jacinto, where on April 21st, 1836, Sam Houston's force of 900 men overran the 1,300-man force of Antonio Lopez de Santa Anna and captured Mexican dictator Santa Anna himself, did Texas really become an independent state with a working constitution? Many question whether the Lone Star Republic would survive given the dismal state of its finances, an army that couldn't protect the Republican the Republic's sweeping land claims to the West and the South, a hostile Mexico that only reluctantly accepted Texas secession, and a United States that appeared to be unwilling to bring Texas into the Union. Annexation to the United States in 1845 ended such, such questions and brought into being a new constitution, this time a state constitution that would operate within the framework of the U.S. Constitution. Okay, so the next phase of Texas founding is going to take place from 1845 to 1861. Although the 1836 Constitution called for annexation by the United States, Texas remained an independent republic for nine years. The reasons included American concerns that if Texas were admitted to the Union as a slave state, the move could alter the delicate balance between slave and free states and further divide the nation over the sensitive subject of slavery. Additionally, it was feared that annexation by the United States would lead to war with Mexico. Santa Ana had repudiated the Treaty of Alaska, which had ended the war between Texas and Mexico, and Mexico thus still claimed Texas as part of its territory. Though both of these fears proved justified, hesitation over annexation was overcome by the mid-1840s. On March 1, 1845, the U.S. Congress approved a resolution that brought Texas into the Union as a, as a state. The annexation resolution had a number of interesting provisions. First, the Republic of Texas ceded to the United States all military armaments, bases, and facilities pertaining to public defense. Second, Texas retained a right to all its vacant and unappropriated lands, as well as responsibility for its public debts. This was no small matter because Texas claimed an enormous amount of land that extended far beyond its present state boundaries. The boundary issues were not resolved until Congress passed the Compromise of 1850, which among other provisions established Texas present boundaries in exchange for a payment from the federal government, some of which was used to pay the state's debts. Finally, Texas would give him permission to break up into four additional states when its population proved adequate. Considerable controversy surrounds this provision and no serious attempt has been made to put it into effect. On July 4, 1845, Anson Jones, fourth and final president of the Republic of Texas, called a convention in Austin to draft a state constitution. Drafters of the constitution relied heavily on the constitution of 1836, although the final document ended up being almost twice as long. The familiar doctrines of separation of powers, checks and balances, and individual rights defined the basic design of government. Under the Constitution of 1845, the legislature would be composed of two houses. The House of Representatives would have between 45 and 90 members elected for two-year terms, and the Senate between 19 and 33 members elected for four-year terms. Half of the Senate would be elected every two years. As in the U.S. Constitution, revenue bills would have to originate in the House. In a separate article on education, the legislature was ordered to establish a public school system and to set aside lands to support a permanent school fund. Another power granted to the legislature was the authority to select the state treasurer and comptroller in a joint session. 
this constitution provided for an elected governor and lieutenant governor. The governor's term was set at two years, and a governor could serve only four years in any six-year period. Among the executive powers granted to the governor were powers to convene and adjourn the legislature. To veto legislation, vetoes could be overturned by a two-thirds vote of each house of the legislature, to grant pardons and reprieves, and to command the state militia. The governor also had the power to appoint the attorney general, secretary of state, and the district and Supreme Court justice, judges, subject to the approval of the Senate. The Constitution of 1845 established a judicial branch consisting of a Supreme Court composed of three judges, district courts, and lower courts deemed necessary by the legislature. Judges on the higher courts were to be appointed to six-year terms and could be removed from office subject to a two-thirds vote of each house of the legislature. Amending the Constitution of 1845 was difficult. After being proposed by a two-thirds vote of each house, amendments had to be approved by a majority of the voters and then by another two-thirds vote of each house in the next legislature in order to be ratified. Only one amendment was ever made, an 1850 provision for the election of state officials who were originally appointed by the governor or by the legislature. While slavery had made it difficult for Texas to get into the Union in the early 1840s, slavery drove Texas from the Union 20 years later. By 1860, slavery, concentrated in East Texas and along the Gulf Coast, had become a vital institution to the Texas economy. However, in large sections of the state, particularly in the North and West, the economy was based on ranching or corn and wheat production rather than cotton. There, slavery was virtually non-existent. The question of whether Texas should secede from the Union along with other southern slave states was a controversial one that divided the state along regional as well as party lines. Pressure to secede mounted following the November 1860 election of President Abraham Lincoln, who was committed to resisting the further expansion of slavery. A staunch Unionist, Governor Sam Houston refused calls to convene a special session of the legislature to discuss secession. Seeking to bypass Houston, a number of influential political leaders in the state, including the Chief Justice of the Texas Supreme Court, called for a special convention in January 1861 to consider secession. Giving in to the pressure, Houston called a special session of the legislature in the hopes of undercutting the upcoming secession convention. The legislature, however, had other ideas, validating the call for the convention and turning its chambers over to the convention delegates. Lawyers and slaveholders dominated the secession convention, with lawyers composing 40% of the delegates and slaveholders 70%. The Texas Ordinance of Secession, produced by the convention on February 2, 1861, reflected this pro-slavery membership. In striking language, it proclaimed that the northern states had broken faith with Texas, particularly regarding the institution of slavery, and that northerners had violated the laws and constitution of the federal union by appealing to a higher law that trampled on the rights of Texans. Texas voters approved secession from the union on February 23, 1861. The secession convention then reconvened to enact a new constitution to guide the state as it entered the Confederacy. This constitution was surprisingly similar to the Constitution of 1845, except that references to the United States of America were replaced with references to the Confederate States of America. Public officials had to declare allegiance to the Confederacy, and slavery and states' rights were defended. A clause in the 1845 Constitution that provided for the possible emancipation of slaves was eliminated, and freeing slaves was declared illegal. But more controversial proposals, such as resuming the African slave trade, were rejected. The move out of the Union into the Confederacy may have been a radical one, but the new Constitution was conservative insofar as it reaffirmed the existing constitutional order in the state. 
Defeat in the Civil War led to the writing of another state constitution in 1866. The provisional governor, pro-union Andrew Jackson Hamilton, called a convention, constitutional convention on November 15, 1865, a little over six months after the surrender of Robert E. Lee's army in Virginia, essentially ending the Confederacy's existence. Delegates were elected on January 8, 1866, and the convention was held February 7th. Under the provisions of President Andrew Johnson's presidential reconstruction, few former secessionists were excluded from voting. As a result, the convention was dominated by former secessionists, many of whom had held commissions in the Confederate Army. The delegates took a number of actions to bring the state into compliance with presidential reconstruction, including the rejection of the right to secession, a repudiation of the war debt incurred by the state, and an acceptance of the abolition of slavery. Male freed slaves were granted fundamental rights to their persons and property, as well as the right to sue and be sued and to contract with others. However, they were not allowed to vote and were banned from holding public office. The various amendments to the Constitution of 1861 passed by the convention came to be known as the Constitution of 1866. As in the two previous constitutions, the size of the House was set between 45 and 90 members and that of the Senate between 19 and 33. Terms of office remained the same as under the 1845 and 61 constitutions, although salaries were increased. Reapportionment was to be based on the number of white male citizens who would be counted in a census every 10 years. The salary was also increased for the governor, whose term was extended to four years, with a limit of eight years in any 12-year period. The governor was also granted, for the first time, a line-item veto on appropriations. The comptroller and the treasurer were to be elected by the voters for four-year terms. Under the new constitution, the state Supreme Court was expanded from three to five judges, whose terms were increased to 10 years and whose salaries were also increased. The chief justice was to be be selected from among the five judges on the Supreme Court. District Court judges were to be elected for eight-year terms and the Attorney General for a four-year term. Voters ratified the Constitution of 1866 in June in a relatively close referendum. The close vote was attributed to a widespread unhappiness with the salary increases for the various state officers, but there were other sources of opposition as well. Many Unionists who had been driven from the state during the war rejected the Constitution, arguing it was the product of a convention dominated by former secessionists. They appealed to the increasingly radical Republican Congress in Washington, D.C. for redress, arguing that former secessionists should be disenfranchised and forbidden from holding office. Their arguments gained force when the first legislature, elected under the provisions of the Constitution of 1866, passed laws including the Black Codes, which limited the social, political, and economic status of African Americans in Texas. In response, radical Republicans in Washington passed the Congressional Reconstruction Acts of 1867. Republicans in Congress had come to see the initial efforts of reintegrating Texas and other southern states back into the Union as a failure. Under the direction of Congress, General Winfield Scott, the commander of the Union military force that was still occupying Texas and Louisiana, summarily dismissed most state officials elected to office under the 1866 Constitution and called for a new convention to write a new constitution in Texas in 1868. This time, however, former secessionists would be banned from voting or holding office. Against limited Democratic opposition, radical Republicans easily won the vote to hold a convention. Of the 90 delegates to the convention, only six had served in the previous constitutional convention. Ten were African American. The vast majority represented the interests of varying wings of the, in the Republican Party. The convention was a rancorous affair as delegates argued over a wide range of issues, including railroad charters, lawlessness in the state, and whether laws passed during the war years were illegal. 
In the final days of the convention, delegates finally got down to the constitutional matters and the challenges of accepting the 13th and 14th Amendments to the United States Constitution, which abolished slavery, provided full citizenship to African Americans, and restricted former secessionists from holding office. Although delegates never completed their task of reworking the Constitution of 1866, the results of their efforts were published under orders by military officials without being submitted to the voters and became the Constitution of 1869. A number of features of the Constitution of 1869 stand out. The U.S. Constitution was declared to be the supreme law of the land. As in the 1866 Constitution, slavery was forbidden. But now African Americans were given the right to vote. Fourteenth Amendment guarantees of the privileges and immunities of citizens, due process under law, and equal protection under the law were recognized. Additionally, the Constitution altered the relationship among the three branches of government. The House of Representatives was set at 90 and the Senate at 30 members. Senatorial terms were extended to six years with one-third of the seats to be elected every biennium. Legislative sessions were to be held annually. The most critical changes, however, were in the executive branch and the courts. The powers of the governor were vastly expanded. Among other things, the governor was given wide-ranging appointment powers that included the power to appoint judges. The state Supreme Court was reduced from five to three judges, and their term was reduced to nine years, with one new judge to be appointed every three years. Salaries for state officials were increased. Underlying and fueling the debate over the Constitution of 1869 was another deeper constitutional debate about the meaning of the Secession Ordinance of 1861, the Constitution of 1861, and the Texas government that had functioned under the Confederacy. From the perspective of the U.S. Constitution, had Texas ever left the Union? Was the Constitution of 1861 illegal? And what about the laws that had been passed by the legislature under the powers granted by the 1861 Constitution? Were they the law of the land, or did they have no legal force? Were all laws that had been written in all contracts that had been made during the period of rebellion null and void? This debate came to an end with the U.S. Supreme Court decision, Texas versus White in 1869. Here, the court ruled that Texas had never left the Union, which was perpetual and as indissoluble as the Union between the original states. The Ordinance of Secession of 1861 and all acts of the legislature that gave effect to that ordinance were considered to be null. The first governor elected under the Constitution of 1869 was Edmund Davis, a Republican affiliated with the radical faction of the party and a former Union general. Davis had vast authority since the Constitution had centralized in power in the executive while reducing local governmental control. The popular perception at the time was that he presided over a corrupt, extravagant administration that eventually turned to the state police and the militia the, to attempt to maintain its control. Closer to the truth may be the fact that Davis sought to maintain his role by relying on former slaves who had become a bulwark of the Republican Party in the state and by limiting the reintegration of former Confederates into state politics. In 1872, the Democrats regained control of the legislature, and in 1873, the Democrat Richard Koch was elected governor. Davis attempted to maintain control over the governor's office by having his hand-picked Supreme Court invalidate Koch's election. He refused to give up his office and surrounded himself with state police in the Capitol. However, when Democrats slipped past the guards and gathered upstairs in the Capitol to organize the government, Davis was unable to obtain federal troops to maintain him in office and finally had to leave. The final phase of Texas founding began with the passage of the Constitution of 1876. To prevent another government such as Davis's efforts or such as Davis's, efforts were made to write a new constitution, but in 1874 a proposed constitution was rejected by the legislature. 
Finally, in 1875, a new constitutional convention was called, with three delegates selected by popular vote from each of the 30 senatorial districts. The final composition of the convention included 75 white Democrats and 15 Republicans, six of whom were African American. Not one of the elected delegates had participated in the Constitutional Convention of 1868-69. Forty of them were farmers and 40 mem were members of the Grange, a militant organization that had emerged to improve the financial plight of farmers. The document that emerged from this convention, the Constitution of 1876, is still the basis for Texas government today. In an era of agriculture when prices and incomes were low and when little was demanded or expected from government, much of the 1876 Constitution made sense. However, one might question whether a constitution designed primarily by white males for whites in a rural agrarian society and for the purpose of keeping the likes of Edmund Davis from ever controlling the state again is the best foundation for government in the modern era. The framers were committed to a constitution with four major themes. First, they wanted strong popular control of state government. Second, they believed that a constitution should seriously limit the power of state government. Third, they saw Sorry. They sought economy in government. And fourth, they sought to promote agrarian interests, particularly those of small farmers, who formed the basis of support for the Grange movement. Popular control of state government meant that the governor's previously vast appointment powers were limited by making judges and other public officials subject to election. But it did not mean broadening the electorate. When the framers of the 1876 Constitution thought of popular control of government, they thought of control by white males. In the effort to limit the powers of state government, the Constitution placed great restrictions on governmental actions, restrictions that could be modified only through a complex constitutional amendment process. Executive authority was diffused among numerous office holders rather than concentrated in the hands of governor. Although subsequently changed by constitutional amendment, an initial provision further limited gubernatorial power by setting a two-year term limit for the office. The legislature was part-time, ordinarily sitting for a prescribed time period every other year, in contrast to the annual sessions provided for in the 1869 Constitution. Limiting the power of state government was accomplished in several other ways. The Constitution restricted the extent of government debt and of government's power to tax. In addition, there were limits on the salaries of state officials, especially legislatures. legislators. A major economic depression had begun in 1873, and many Texans were experiencing economic hardship. One way money was saved was by decentralizing public education. The Constitution provided for racially segregated schools and eliminated compulsory education laws. By gaining local control over education, white landowners could avoid paying taxes for the education of African American students. Texas at that time was an agricultural state. Wishing to protect agrarian interests, the framers wrote provisions protecting homesteads from bankruptcy proceedings and restricting institutions that were perceived to be harmful to farmers, such as banks and railroads. There were also detailed regulations on railroad competition, freight and passenger rates, and railroad construction incentives. The Constitution of 1876 was a conservative document with a distinctly populist flavor. On the other hand, or on one hand, it broke with the more activist government model laid out by the two Reconstruction Constitutions of 1866 and 69. On the other hand, it sought to protect those being harmed by the social and economic changes that transformed Texas after Reconstruction. The debates at the Constitutional Convention of 1875 drew attention to the fact that Texas was undergoing rapid change. New social and economic 
conditions, particularly the aggregation of capital in immense railroad systems, gave rise to new social and political problems. These, in turn, demanded the institution of new restrictions on the powers of state government to prevent corruption. A new constitution with new provisions that restricted the activities of government became the bulwark of a conservative white social and political order in the state throughout the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Even in its earliest stages, the Texas Constitution of 1876 was a lengthy, rigid, and detailed document, and purposely so. Regulations curtailing government power were placed not in statutes where they could easily be reversed, but in the body of the Constitution. The goal of this design was to ensure that the radical Republicans and Edmund Davis would never again be able to control the state. They never did, although over the years, the Constitution became an increasingly unwieldy document. So, the Constitution today. Now, the U.S. Constitution has two great virtues, right? Brevity and flexibility. Neither of these can be said to characterize the Texas Constitution. The U.S. Constitution is limited to seven short articles and 27 amendments and takes up only eight pages of the World Almanac. Much in the federal document is left unsaid, allowing lawmaking to be accomplished by statute. In contrast, in 2016, the Texas Constitution contains 16 articles. 673 amendments have been proposed by the legislature. 491 have been approved by the electorate, while 179 have been defeated. Curiously, three amendments were proposed by the legislature, but for obscure historical reasons, never voted on by the electorate. Many of the articles are lengthy, complex affairs, taking up over 67 pages of text and one edition of the Texas Almanac. But it is not just the length that differentiates the two constitutions. There is a difference in tone. The Texas Constitution reflects the writer's fears of what government could do that the principle of limited government was not clearly established. In addition to its severe limits on executive power, the Texas Constitution also addresses a number of specific policy problems directly in the text, turning what might appear to be matters of public policy into issues of constitutional authority. By granting a variety of boards and districts a special place in the Constitution, the framers created additional checks and balances that make it difficult for governors to exercise power effectively. Quite unintentionally, the Texas Constitution became a place where special interests could promote and protect their own agendas, even in the face of considerable political opposition. The contrast and character between the federal and Texas Constitutions are a direct reflection of the differences in their framers' underlying goals. The U.S. Constitution was written to overcome the liabilities of the Articles of Confederation and create a government that could act effectively in the public welfare in a variety of policy areas. The Texas Constitution was written to prevent the expansion of governmental authority and the return of a system of political power that was perceived as acting against the interests of the people. The preamble to the Texas Constitution is surprisingly short. Humbly invoking the blessings of Almighty God, the people of the state of Texas do ordain and establish this Constitution. Now, Article 1 is our Bill of Rights. So, Article 1 of the U.S. Constitution establishes and delegates power to the legislative branch and government. One of the overriding concerns of the founders was to create a legislature that could effective, act effectively in public affairs. What came to be known as the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, was added after the original Constitution was drafted and approved. In contrast, the Texas Constitution puts its Bill of Rights up front as Article 1. 
well before any discussion of the legislature, the executive, or the courts. From the beginning, the purpose of the Texas Constitution was not simply to create a set of institutions that could wield political power. It was to limit the way political power is used and to prevent it from being abused. Section 1 of the Bill of Rights proclaims that Texas is a free and independent state, subject only to the Constitution of the United States, and the maintenance of our free institutions and the perpetuity of the Union depend upon the preservation of local self-government unimpaired to all the states. On the face of it, this proclamation would seem to be relatively non-controversial, as it appears to accept the Constitution of the U.S. and the perpetuity of the Union. Put into proper historical context, however, it meant something very different. The Constitution of 1869, written under the watchful eyes of radical Republicans in Texas and in the U.S. Congress, had rejected the heresies of nullification and secession and explicitly acknowledged that the U.S. Constitution was the supreme law of the land and that the Texas Constitution was subject to national authority. Article 1, Section 1, the product of a constitutional convention in 1876 that was hostile to many of the efforts of Reconstruction, concedes two very different things. One, that Texas is free and independent, subject to the U.S. Constitution. And two, that free institutions and the perpetuity of the Union depend upon local self-government that is unimpaired. No mention is made of the supremacy of the U.S. Constitution over the state constitution. The idea of a perpetual union is made to depend upon the preservation of local self-government, meaning an independent and autonomous state government freed from an intrusive national authority. Texas may have lost the Civil War, but Article 1, Section 1 claims an autonomy of the state from outside forces that would have surprised many politicians outside the state. Such sentiments continue to resonate throughout parts of Texas today. The Texas Bill of Rights embodies certain ideas captured in earlier state constitutions and the U.S. Bill of Rights. All free men are declared to have equal rights that cannot be denied or abridged because of sex, race, color, creed, or national origin. Freedom of religious worship is guaranteed, and religious tests for office are prohibited. Liberty of speech and liberty of the press are guaranteed. Individuals are protected from unreasonable search and seizure of their homes and property, from excessive bail, from bills of attainder, which imposes punishment for an action without holding a trial, and ex post facto laws making an action into a crime retroactively, and from double jeopardy, being prosecuted twice for the same crime. Article 1 also guarantees an individual a right to a trial by jury and the right to bear arms in the lawful defense of himself or the state, but the legislature shall have the power by law to regulate the wearing of arms with a view to prevent crime. Article 1 also contains some ideas that move beyond those guaranteed by the first 10 amendments of the U.S. Constitution. The right to Republican government, something clearly stated in the main body of the U.S. Constitution but not in the U.S. Bill of Rights, is powerfully articulated in the first two sections of Article 1. These sections declare that all political power is inherent in the people and that the people of Texas have at all times the inalienable right to alter, reform, or abolish their government in such a manner as they may think expedient. The differences between the Texas Bill of Rights and the U.S. Bill of Rights are not simply matters of where best to articulate a philosophy of Republican government. They also involve very concrete matters of public policy. Section 26 of the Texas Bill of Rights, for example, forbids monopolies that are contrary to the public interest and states that the law of primogeniture and entail a law designed to keep large landed properties together by restricting their inheritance to the firstborn child will never be in effect in the state. Although monopolies remain a public concern today, primogeniture and entail are not. Section 
11 in the Texas Bill of Rights grapples with the complicated issue of bail and under what specific circumstances an individual can be denied it. Significantly, Section 11 has been the subject of three major constitutional revisions in 1955, 1977, and 1993. Section 30, adopted in 1989, provides a long list of the rights of crime victims including the right to be treated fairly and with dignity, the right to be protected from the accused, and the right to restitution. Although these are important matters of public policy for Texas today, they could hardly be considered proper material for the U.S. Constitution. So, Article 2. Like the U.S. Constitution, Article 2 divides the power of government into Texas, or in Texas, into three distinct branches, the legislative, the executive, and the judicial. It also stipulates that no one in any one branch shall be attached to either of the other branches except where explicitly permitted, as in the case of the lieutenant governor's role in the Senate. The article, one short paragraph of text, assures that a version of the separation of powers doctrine found in the U.S. Constitution will be embodied in Texas institutions. Article 2 is one of the shortest articles in the Texas Constitution. Article 3 is the longest making up almost one-third of the original text of 1876. Like Article 1 of the U.S. Constitution, Article 3 of the Texas Constitution vests legislative power in two houses, a Senate of 31 members and a House of Representatives of no more than 150 members. It stipulates the terms of office and qualifications. House members serve two-year terms, whereas senators serve four-year terms, half being elected every two years. House members must be citizens of the United States, must be at least 21 years of age, and must have resided in the state for two years and in their district for one year. Senators must be citizens of the United States, must be at least 26 years old, and must have resided in the state for five years and in their districts for one year. In addition, Article 3 provides for the selection of officers in both houses of the legislature, states when and for how long the legislature shall meet, and explains how the legislative proceedings will be conducted and how representative districts will be apportioned. Like Article 1, Article 3 moves well beyond the U.S. Constitution, putting limits on what the legislature can do. For example, it puts limits on legislators' salaries and makes it difficult to increase those salaries. Article 3 also creates a bipartisan Texas Ethics Commission, whose job, among other things, is to recommend salary increases for members of the legislature and to set per diem rates for legislators and the lieutenant governor. <coughs> um, Article 3, Section 49A also subjects the legislature to the actions of the Comptroller of Public Accounts, whose duty is to prepare a report prior to the legislative session on the financial condition of the state treasury and to provide estimates of future expenditures by the state. This provision of the Texas Constitution effectively limits the state legislatures to the financial calculations and endorsements of the Comptroller, a check on the legislature all but unimaginable to the writers of the U.S. Constitution. Putting constraints on certain legislative actions is only part of the story. The largest portion of Article 3 is dedicated to addressing a variety of policy issues, including lotteries, emergency service districts, debt creation, the Veterans Land Board, and the Texas Water Development Board, Texas Park Development, the creation of a state medical education board, and even the establishment of an economic development fund in support of the now defunct superconducting supercollider. Article 4. So, Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution concentrates executive power in the presidency 
Under the U.S. Constitution, cabinet members such as the Secretary of State, the Attorney General, and the Secretary of Agriculture are appointed by the President and confirmed by the Senate. Executive power is vested or placed in the hands of the President. Vested executive power in this regard is a broad-ranging term that covers a wide range of activities. The goal of the framers was to create a more effective and more responsible executive than had been possible under the Articles of Confederation. In contrast, there is no vesting of executive power in any one executive office in Texas. Article 4 of the Texas Constitution states that the executive shall consist of six distinct offices. The governor, who serves as the chief executive, the lieutenant governor, who serves as the president of the Senate, secretary of state, who keeps the official seals of the state, the comptroller of public accounts, the commissioner of the general land office, and the attorney general, who acts as the state's chief legal officer. With the exception of the Secretary of State, who is appointed by the Governor and approved by the Senate, all other offices are elected by qualified voters every four years. Besides creating a plural executive, Article 4 guarantees its members will have independent political bases in the electorate. This arrangement provides an additional check against any concentration of powers in the hands of any one person. Article 3 of the U.S. Constitution succinctly provides for a Supreme Court and empowers Congress to create any necessary lower courts. As such, it cannot be further from the detailed discussion of the state courts found in Article 5 of the Texas Constitution. Besides creating a Supreme Court to hear civil cases and a court of criminal appeals to hear criminal cases, Article 5 provides for such lesser courts as courts of appeal, district courts, commissioner's courts, and justice of the peace courts, and empowers the legislature to establish other courts as deemed necessary. It also goes into such details as the retirement and compensation of judges, the jurisdictions of the various courts, and the duties of judges. <clears throat> it states what to do in the case of court vacancies, and it includes a series of discussions on particular issues involving the lower courts. An even greater difference between the federal and the Texas constitutions and their treatment of the judiciary is the crucial role the latter gives to elections. Federal judges are appointed by the president and approved by the Senate. In Texas, the people elect state judges. Nine Supreme Court and nine Court of Criminal Appeals judges are elected at large in the state, and lower court judges are elected by voters in their respective geographic locations. Much like the U.S. Constitution, the Texas Constitution seeks to create an independent judiciary that can check and balance the other two branches of government. However, it seeks an additional check as well in that it wants the people to, in turn, watch over the courts. Now, Article 6, it contains a short but detailed discussion about who may vote in Texas. It also empowers the legislature to enact laws regulating voter registration and the selection of electors for president and vice president. Now, Article 7 on education. So the concerns found in the Texas Declaration of Independence over the need for public schools to promote a Republican form of government are directly addressed in Article 7, which declares... A general diffusion of knowledge is essential to the preservation of the liberties and rights of the people. Section 1 makes it a duty of the state legislature to support and maintain an efficient system of public free schools. The Texas Supreme Court's interpretation of this provision as applying to school funding in the state has led to political battles over school finance for 40 years. Sections 2 through 8 provide for the funding of public education and the creation of a state board of education to oversee the operations of elementary and secondary education. 
Article 7 also provides for the establishment and funding of a university of the first class to be called the University of Texas, as well as an agricultural and mechanical college, Texas A&M University. Provisions were later included to fund other state universities and colleges. State universities are the subject of over half of Article 7, where detailed discussions of the funding and operations of particular state institutions are put directly into the text. The complex issue of taxation is the subject of Article 8, where once again we find a highly detailed account of several important policy issues built directly into the text of the Constitution. One of the most controversial sections of the Texas Constitution centers on the issue of the income tax. Section 1 of Article 8 enables the legislature to tax the income of individuals and businesses. This power, however, is subject to Section 24, adopted in 1993, which requires that a personal income tax be approved by the voters and that the proceeds from it be dedicated to education and tax relief. As with other portions of the Constitution, the net effect of these provisions is to curtail severely what the state legislature can do and how it can do it. Is Section 24 of Article 8 is any indication the public fear of unresponsive and potentially tyrannical government is as alive today as it was in 1876? Articles 9 and 11. These articles provide highly detailed discussions of the creation, organization, and operation of counties and municipal corporations. Articles 10, 12, 13, and 14. These heavily revised articles deal with a series of specific topics. The railroads in 10, private corporations in 12, Spanish and Mexican land titles in 13, and public lands in 14. Article 10 empowers the state to regulate railroads and to establish the Railroad Commission. Article 12 empowers the state to create general laws creating private corporations and protecting the public and individual stockholders. Article 13, now entirely repealed, dealt with the 19th century issue of Spanish and Mexican land titles. Article 14 created a general land office to deal with the registration of land titles. In the U.S. Constitution, impeachment is one of the major checks Congress holds against both the executive and judicial branches of government. The House of Representatives holds the power to impeach an individual. The Senate is responsible for conducting trials. A two-thirds vote in the Senate following impeachment by the House leads to the removal of an individual from office. A similar process is provided for in Article 15 of the Texas Constitution. The House has the power to impeach. The Senate has the power to try the governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, land office commissioner, and comptroller, as well as judges of the Supreme Court, the Courts of Appeal, and District Courts. Conviction requires a two-thirds vote of the senators present. In contrast to the U.S. Constitution, the Texas Constitution rules that all officers against whom articles of impeachment are proffered are suspended from their office. The governor is empowered to appoint a person to fill the vacancy until the decision on impeachment is reached. Despite these similarities to the impeachment procedures in the U.S. Constitution, the Texas Constitution has its own caveats. Most notably, the Texas Constitution does not explicitly define impeachable offenses in terms of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors as the U.S. Constitution does. The House and Senate and the courts decide what constitutes an impeachable offense. In addition, the Supreme Court has original jurisdiction to hear and determine whether district court judges are competent to discharge their judicial duties. 
The governor may also remove judges of the Supreme Court, courts of appeal, and district courts when requested by uh, the two-thirds vote of each legislature. Significantly, the reasons for removing a judge in this case need only involve a willful neglect of duty, incompetence, habitual drunkenness, oppression in office, or other reasonable cause. The barriers to removing a judge by political means are thus, at least on paper, much lower in Texas than in the national government. In 1980, Section 9 was added to Article 15, providing a new way to remove officials appointed by the governor. With the advice and consent of two-thirds of the members of the Senate present, a governor may remove an appointed public official. If the legislature is not in session, the governor is empowered to call a special two-day session to consider the proposed removal. Article 16 is one of the lengthiest in the Texas Constitution and has no... Alright, Article 16. So it's one of the lengthiest in the Texas Constitution and has no parallel in the U.S. Constitution. It is literally a catch-all article tackling a variety of issues ranging from official oaths of office to community property to banking corporations and stock laws to the election of the Texas Railroad Commission to the state retirement systems. Here, perhaps more than anywhere else, we see the complexity and confusion of the philosophy reflected in the Texas Constitution. Article 17. So, like the U.S. Constitution, the Texas Constitution explicitly delineates how it can be amended. Essentially, to be adopted, an amendment must undergo a four-stage process. First, it must be proposed by the legislature, meeting in either regular or special session. Second, it must be approved by a two-thirds vote of all the members elected to each house. Third, a brief statement explaining it must be published twice in each recognized newspaper in the state that meets the publication requirements for official state notices. Finally, it must be approved, be approved by a majority of the state's voters in a statewide election. some recent attempts to try and rewrite the Texas Constitution. Given the difficulty of amending the state constitution, a surprising number of amendments have been proposed since 1876. Considerable number of these, however, have been turned down in the popular vote. So, demands for amending the constitution have intensified in recent years as legislators have dealt with the problem of making changes in public policy while being constrained by an unwieldy constitutional document. A drive to rewrite the Texas Constitution grew out of a major stock fraud that broke in the early 1970s involving the Sharpstown State Bank and the National Bankers Life Insurance Corporation. Following the 1970 elections, which had been dominated, as generally was the case at the time, by the conservative wing of the Democratic Party, a suit filed in Dallas Federal Court by the Federal Securities and Exchange Commission alleged that a number of influential Democrats, including Governor Preston Smith, the state Democratic chairman and state banking board member Elmer Baum, Speaker of the House Guts Mutcher, and others have been bribed. By the fall of 1971, Mutcher and two of his associates have been indicted. On March 15, 1972, they were convicted and sentenced to five years probation. The convictions fueled a firestorm in the state to throw the rascals out. During the 1972 elections, reform candidates dominated the Democratic Party primary in the general election. One reformer, the politically conservative rancher banker Dolph Briscoe, became governor, but only by a plurality making him the first governor in the history of the state not to receive a majority of the popular vote. 
Other more liberal reform-minded candidates such as Lieutenant Governor William P. Hobby Jr. and Attorney General John Hill were also successful. When the smoke cleared, half of the House seats were occupied by new members, and the Senate had witnessed a higher than normal rate of turnover. The elections had one other outcome. An amendment was passed empowering the legislature to sit as a constitutional convention whose task would be to rewrite the Constitution and then present the new document to state voters for ratification. The Constitutional Convention met on January 8, 1974 in Austin. Originally scheduled to last 90 days, it was extended to 150 days, but even so, it did not have enough time. Bitter politics, coupled with the intense demands of highly mobilized special interests, made it impossible to reach agreement. In the end, proponents of a new constitution failed to achieve the necessary two-thirds majority by three votes. The movement to rewrite the constitution did not die at the convention, however. During the next session of the legislature, eight constitutional amendments were passed that effectively would have rewritten the constitution through the normal amendment process. Each proposal, however, was turned down by the electorate in a special election on November 4, 1975. So the Constitution of 1876 remained alive, if not well. So one thing is clear about Texas elections dealing with constitutional amendments is that voting, voting participation is invariably low. So there are two likely reasons for the low voter turnout in constitutional amendment elections. First, constitutional amendment elections are usually held in off years, following the general session of the legislature and most special sessions when there are no elections with candidates on the ballot. Without candidates to generate voter turnout, the political parties take a less active role in getting out their voters. As a result, advertising campaigns about the election are frequently limited to those of interest groups that support or oppose the issues on the ballot. Second, Many of the amendments are relatively insignificant to most voters. While most proposed constitutional amendments are uncontroversial, such was not the case in 2011 when three of the ten amendments presented to the voters were turned down. The controversial ones were those that the Tea Party and other anti-tax groups saw as increasing the financial burden on Texas. For example, Proposition 4 was defeated because it would have expanded the ability of counties to issue bonds to finance the development of unproductive areas where those bonds were to be repaid with property tax revenues. Critics of the proposal argued that it would clear the way for new toll roads. Proposition 7 was defeated because it would have given El Paso new borrowing authority. Proposition 8, which passed the legislature with bipartisan support, was defeated because it would have given property owners the opportunity to opt out of agricultural or wildlife conservation property tax exemptions in favor of water conservation property tax exemptions. The Tea Party successfully opposed the proposition on the grounds that it would shift the tax burden to others. While the Tea Party and other anti-tax groups could not defeat all of the propositions they opposed, low voter turnout enabled them to exert a significant influence. Indeed, their defeat of three proposals broke the modern pattern in which amendments are routinely approved. For example, between 2001 and 2010, 77 of 79 proposed amendments were approved. In the 2017 constitutional amendment elections, voters were asked to consider seven proposed amendments. All seven passed, although only 
5.7% of registered voters bothered to vote, down from 11.3% in the 2015 constitutional amendment elections. Participation in the 2005 constitutional amendment election may appear to be abnormally high. Most of the 2005 proposed constitutional amendments were, like the previously discussed proposition, of significance only to a narrow group of people. For example, one of the nine proposed amendments provided for clearing land titles in Upshur and Smith counties. Another authorized the legislature to provide for a six-year term for a board member of a regional mobility authority. Yet the turnout in this election was much higher than is typically seen in constitutional amendment elections. The reason was Proposition 2, which defined marriage in Texas as the union of one man and one woman. The proposition also prohibited the state or any political subdivision of the state from creating or recognizing any legal status identical to or similar to marriage. The proposition generated a strongly favorable vote. Unlike Proposition 12 in 2003, this was not an economic battle involving interests concerned with tort law. Rather, this was an issue pitting social conservatives against those more sympathetic to gay rights. The strength of the social conservative vote in the state was, of course, remarkable, since the amendment carried by more than a 3 to 1 margin. Many churches and religious organizations strongly supported the proposed amendment. Their activities probably generated the relatively high voter turnout. The proposition was unusual in that people felt it was important to their lives because it affected the value systems. Although it is doubtful the amendment was necessary to support the traditional concept of marriage and although the ambiguity of the provision rejecting any legal status similar to marriage is disturbing, a significant part of the voting population apparently believed it, that it was important to vote their moral values even if the proposal was largely symbolic. So that's all I have for Texas and Constitutions. I hope you learned something and found it interesting. The next podcast on Texas is going to be about Texas and the federal system. So I hope you guys enjoyed it and I will talk to you guys later. Bye.